Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Welcome to Football is Family, a podcast dedicated to the fan and fan experience. My name is Jeremy McFarland, and I want to look at the positive behind what makes football so enjoyable to watch and follow. I want to know why you are a fan of your team, of a player, or an era of football. Whether the pros, college, or high school, I want to hear and share your stories and your love for the game. If you want to be part of this podcast, please message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarlane, or on Facebook at the Footballist Family Facebook page. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is Jeremy McFarland from the Footballist Family Podcast, and we had a couple of things that I wanted to add before we go into the uh, you know the the program for today. Uh, number one, this is the Football Is Family uh, podcast, as you know, and I like to think that we can break up the football and the family parts of the program. Today is going to be one of those family parks. A, a, a guy. You'll recognize when we uh, we talked to him earlier a couple of weeks ago about his book, uh, Mr. Gary. He is going to be on today to talk about his life. Not much football, but his life. And I tell you what, I enjoy talking to him and learning about his life, not only in Australia, but his travels around the world. Uh, you're going to enjoy talking to him. This is the family part of it. And if you want to talk about your life and the things that you've done, please come on, message me. Uh, get on the foot, uh, Footballers Family Facebook page and let me know. I'm not just here to talk about football. I want to talk about your life, about some things that are important to you as well. Second, I do like to know when I can make things better. And my friend Darren Hayes from the Pigskin Dispatch uh, messaged me about last week's episode, the great or the undrafted about men who have gone to the Hall of Fame and were undrafted. And he said, you need to add two people to that list. One was undrafted, and the other one was a man who found him. Uh, the man that found him and this particular man are going into the NFL Hall of Fame in the same class. The man who found the guy we're going to talk about in just a second is named Bill Nunn. Bill Nunn uh, was an innovator. Uh, when he came to uh, working with traditionally black colleges, he was a scout who allowed the Pittsburgh Steelers to go in and to tap some uh, or to to deal with some uh, untapped resources. Men that other colleges or other other schools, or excuse me, other schools might have passed over, and definitely NFL had passed over. Bill Nunn was one of those men that went in there and found great players that deserved their shot in the NFL and made the most of it. And one of those great players was a man named Donnie Shell. He played 
from 1974 to 1987 for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Listen to this. And this is a Hall of Fame career. Five-time Pro Bowler, three-time first-team All-Pro, one-time second All-Pro, second-team All-Pro, Pittsburgh Steelers all-time team, and a four-time Super Bowl champion. 51 interceptions, two touchdowns. And I hate that I missed it, but Donnie Shell from South Carolina State, you are the man. I thank you, Darren, for the update to this. Uh, if you have any, if if I make mistakes, please let me know. I want to know so I can get better. Uh, today, again, uh, not a lot of football is going to be talked about in this particular interview, but I know you're going to enjoy talking to Mr. Gary and hearing his life and his experiences. And I hope to see you next next week on the Footballers Family Podcast. We're back to the Footballers Family Podcast, and we have a recurring. A, a returning guest, I should say, and I'd love to have him to be recurring friend of the program. Would you like to reintroduce yourself to everybody? Uh, hi, hi, everybody. My name is Gary Jarjura, and this is not, I'm not putting on accent. That's how I normally speak because I'm from Sydney, Australia. And um, I, I think of myself as Australia's biggest NFL fan. And um, it's great to be back on your show again, Jeremy. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. No, thank you. Uh, and, and you know, if they're if they can handle my Tennessee accent, they can definitely handle handle your Sydney accent. I think I think we can we can work with that. <laughs> okay. Now, when we had you on last, you talked about your book, and and uh, the book is NFL cliches. Fantastic book. Um. And, and what we'd like to do as well is uh, we'll put it on the show notes how you can get a hold of this book. But what I would like for you to do tonight, and I, it's tonight in Tennessee at 730, but it's morning there in Sydney, is I want to go in a little bit more about you and about your story and about what made, uh, well, just I'm going to let you carry it. You work with film and, and something about Steven Seagal. Yeah, um, for sure. Well, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's Friday morning here, and so uh, I'm not wearing shades, but the future is bright. It's it's winter, but it's bright shining through. So if anybody's wondering how about the future, as the song goes, the future's so bright, I've got to wear shades. Shades. Um, going back when I was young, basically, um, I always uh, – had an interest in um, cartoons, animation. I used to make little, uh, you know, you know, people like kids might might not might not know nowadays. But the flip books we used. To, I'm 56. I'm a bit older than you, Jeremy, or Jezza, as we would call you in Australia. Um, the flip books of how cartoons work. You know, the old cartoons that was made up of um, lots of different pictures, and each picture would slightly have a little bit different movement, like you say your finger or your arm would just be moved. And the perception of movement flicking past your eyes, that's that's well, that's how film works. It's film is technically 24 frames, so 24 different pictures per second. Uh, video is technically 25 or uh, 50. Now that's all changed because it's a lot more so on. But it so um, and then so cartoons, that's how they did it, like Disney um, uh, Walt Disney had his staple of um, people um, that were doing all these drawings and then they just 
I mean, they call them cells or pictures, and uh, that's how they did it. So when I was young, I used to make my own little ones and so on. And then um, when I was uh, school, fifth and sixth class, uh, we had an American teacher, Mr. Cowan, um, and he had a, a Super 8 camera. So I'm talking 75, 76, 1975, 76. Uh, yes, I was alive then. And we used to make um, um, shows like The Six Million Dollar Boy because The Six Million Dollar Man and uh, was the big show then. And we used to do that. And then we'd record the sound on an audio recorder and put it together. And once at school, we charged everybody two cents to come and watch it during lunch and so on. So Crazy used to do that. And then uh, when I was in high school in seven, year seven and eight, <coughs> excuse me, um, I went to a boarding school and they had um, activities you could do besides playing rugby and so on. Um, and so myself and um, about five others, we joined a film group and we'd make little film things. So, look, it was back in those days, nobody knew anyone that was in the film industry or, you know, rarely TV industry and something. It was very rare. You never said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. It was more like, oh, that's fun and so on. And um, you know, it was a it was pipe dream things, and then um, so you know, I left school. I did different things. Tried to be an electrician. Uh, went in the family retail business, and so on. So when I was uh, twenty one, uh, I was going to do an animation course here. They had started one, and then I didn't get into it. Um, so I did a production course at night, two days, two nights a week. It was film and TV. And it was basically, they didn't show you much, didn't teach you much technical. It was called the School of Visual Arts. But I, I learned to just be appreciative of different things, you know, talking about colours and, and why they do those sorts of things. So it was more just an eye-opening. And then I said, oh, I'm going to go to America. So I, on a trip, on my world trip when I was 22, and basically I was in LA and uh, my dad had some cousins in Los Angeles, so I stayed with them a little while or I stayed different things. I just cold called film producers. I don't know. I don't, I mean, it's crazy to think about it now, but I was just Gary from Australia, just turned 22, getting on the pay phones that you used to have because there was no cell phones or texting or emails and so on. And I would just find numbers and cold call. Um, and I would, you know, Occasionally, some of them would let me in. One, one of them was Neil Canton. He was uh, one of the producers on the Back to the Future movies and uh, The Witches of Eastwick and so on. And he was a really nice guy. He was, um, yeah, he just came in and had a talk and whatever. And he obviously understood that I was just this young guy just cold calling and so on. It was things that were different back then, you know, back in the 80s. And he said, oh, why don't you just go out and group of friends and make something and he said a you'll be making something so if you really want to make something you'll make it and you'll enjoy the process and you'll learn uh so i came back and a good friend of mine was an actor who was doing nothing he was working in a pub part-time dave ingle and he's very good english and so on i said let's uh let's write this short short film and this is back in the days that people didn't make short films you know late late 80s 88 sort of thing so we made a short film uh, about a guy that has a dream. He uh, wins the lottery and then he finds he does. And basically um, uh, I knew a couple of friends. I went 
uh, high school with and so on, worked at the TV station. So, you know, one of them filmed it, uh, found somewhere to edit it. Um, but it was basically all the extras and everybody in it. When you look at it nowadays, it's just full of friends and family, you know. It's full, full, full on friends and family f- filmed in, you know, we need a car, you know, it's my brother's car or someone's car or we need a location. It's it's somebody's friend's, in my friend's dad's pub and all the locations and everything and so on. And even like I needed a shot with a, a, a cop, a policeman. So a friend of mine was in the police force, so he wasn't meant to, but he wears his police gear and gives the guys to it. So, and then we, you know, and of course we have a premiere for it at another friend of my brother's, another friend's pub, and we have 200 people turn up. And, yeah, these are the days people didn't make films like that. And then, of course, then I went and made a one-hour film called Meet Cleaver about private investigator. Um, Ted Cleaver investigates kidnapping of um, two football teams in Australia on the eve of the grand final, which is like the Super Bowl. It's a silly comedy. And once again, I put more money and resources into it, but basically everybody in it is a friend of a friend or family and all the locations. And um, we had a premiere of like about at my old high school and the new school hall, and we think we had about 800 people turn up, you know. So those are the days people didn't make it, like 1990. Uh, and then I made another one, and then in 93 I decided uh, I need to concentrate on this a bit more, saved up all my money, applied for to go to the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. I liked, uh, I did a bit of research on it. It's, it was a one-year course then. Uh, you didn't have to do exams. Everything was practical, and you got out of it what you wanted to get out of it. So I sold, sold up everything I had, moved over to America. I applied. I got there, and went to the American Film Institute and, like, in about the second week, um, my cousin said he saw on his, uh, excuse me, old university notice board to be a intern for Steven Seagal. Contact Lucy, Lucy Ann Buffett. So I contact uh, Lucy Ann Buffett and me being the smart aleck or smart ass, as we say, I say, oh, Lucy Ann Buffett, as in Jimmy Buffett. And she said, yeah, he's my brother. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so people that don't know Jimmy Buffett, the, but not as many people in Australia knew who lived. I knew Jimmy Buffett, obviously. But, um, yeah, so Jimmy Buffett's sister ran Stephen Seagal's office, little office. And uh, so I went there and became an intern. You meant to do it one day a week. I went to one to two days a week whenever I could when I wasn't busy at film school. And um, he was finishing off his directional debut movie on deadly ground and i used to joke about it and call it on shaky ground and um they're like oh gary because there's only a couple of people in the office that's sacrilegious and so on so he was a character so we had this office he had this office on the warner brothers lot right next to clint eastwood's and clint eastwood's parking space was uh it, it didn't have clint eastwood it had h callahan like harry callahan from um <laughs> you know the uh, Dirty Harry movies and so on. So you know, so here I was, this uh, twenty. I just turned twenty nine, but you know, I'm still pretty, you know, star struck uh, Australian guy, getting a pass to drive onto the Warner Brothers lot, park there, and so on. And you know, I would do anything they wanted, and so on. Uh, one time they're saying, "Oh, can you go and get lunch for everybody?" 
Um, so I, I drove out, bought lunch, did a U-turn because across outside Warner Brothers, got booked. They didn't care. So, uh, Stephen Segal walks in, looks at the receipts and says, why are we buying the intern's lunch? Um, you know, and I was working for nothing. I thought, oh, great. Um, he was <clears throat> he had a huge physical office inside our office, like ours, ours were big enough, but he had the huge um, room, and but he was never there. He always had two black limousines and he's just travelling around in them all the time and inside each of his limousines he had his driver, his <clears throat> dietitian guy that looked less healthy than me, uh, his um, bodyguard who, I don't know, maybe I could have blown over, and his secretary worker, who um, they were always incredibly good looking. And they would drive uh, around and so on. And so my job at times was if I had to give them things to sign and vice versa, I would meet up with them, you know, around LA and, you know, jump in and say sign and whatever. But uh, yeah, he, he never gave much attention to us, really. Uh, and then. Um, but he worked on my deadly, uh, on deadly ground. They did reshoots. They realised it was a bit of a dud. Came out, uh, got terrible reviews, and it was just funny how everybody all sort of jo- joined in the joking at the office with me. You know that I've been joking about it before. Uh, and then I went. Um, I finished film school, and um, I thought, well, Seagal's not going to give me a job on his next film. Um, uh, uh, the sequel, the one on the train, having a mind blank, um, Under Siege 2, Under Siege 2. So uh, anyway, uh, one of my teachers at uh, film school had a script by John Fusco had written. John Fusco wrote the Young Guns movies and a lot of different other films, and it was called Loch Ness. And it was, um, I said, hey, can I, um, Steve, the producer, I said, uh, you know, if you get this up and away, I know you haven't had a film for a few years, but can I be your assistant? So that's what I did, um, and I became his assistant on the film, and uh, I went over to London with our filming, and then prep, and then we went up into Scotland and filmed this movie Loch Ness with Ted Danson. And Ted Danson was the nicest guy. Uh, I turned thirty while I was there. He organised um, for the hotel we were staying at, one of these remote hotels, to bake a cake for my birthday, and they brought it out, and he led the singing. Um, with uh, Ian Holm and Jolie Richardson and uh, and all the other actors. He was the nicest guy, Ted Danson. Don't anybody let say, uh, he was the first to wish me a happy birthday. He got he was getting into his car as I was walking down early in the morning, got, got out of his car, came up and said happy birthday. I think his assistant saw uh, a fax that one of my brothers sent from Australia saying happy birthday and said, oh, do you know it's Gary's birthday? So he was... You know, not many other people <laughs> gave me attention. So, unfortunately, it was a great experience working on that film. It was very long and hard at different times, went on. But, unfortunately, the movie um, went straight to TV in America, so people don't know about it. I bet it was an experience. Uh, and then um, I came back, got my green card and so on, and then I said, well, I'm going to try and make my own film. And uh, it took a while. Uh I did make my own independent film called Pickups, which never got released. And basically, it's the same plot as The 40-Year-Old Virgin, basically, but I made it first. So <laughs> uh, it's basically this, 
second opening scene is the first and uh you know as a friend of mine said we should go after Judd Apatow and, and, and sue him and I said yeah good luck with that but it, it, it did come out before it and uh and I showed to a couple of friends and they said it's it's his films the same especially the first half but um I got the green card and I decided to go back uh, to America in 2001 just after the Twin Towers um, had come down and America was not in a good state then, but I decided no. I'd, um, I was still going to push ahead with what I believed. And um, a lot of friends of mine from film school and so on had done bits and pieces in low-budget films, but a lot were working in uh, either reality TV or sports and, of course, I know sports and I followed the NFL very closely. Uh, one friend of mine, Neil Mant, had a show that ESPN greenlit called Beg, Borrow and Deal. So I got onto that and worked worked on that and we went around the country for that as um, uh, following contestants around. And then uh, as that was finish, finishing up, uh, they got... Um, the Jim Rome show, Rome is Burning, went to ESPN. So I became attached as that in production. Uh, it was a great experience. And then um, we did Big Brian Deal 2 again. So I've, uh, <coughs> excuse me. So, yeah, so, and we did a lot of the ESPY awards. Uh, we did those pre-show things where we filmed with Samuel L. Jackson and Jamie Foxx and lots of other different people. Uh, on the nights, I'd be flying, you know, doing fly on the wall, filming people, interviewing people, uh, you, you name it, you know. And that's where I first, uh, the first um, ESPYs I went to was just after Tom Brady had won his first Super Bowl. And so, yeah, so I, I got to follow follow his journey. So it was it was very funny at that first ESPYs after he'd won, you know, and they say, oh, this young guy won the, won the uh, Super Bowl. And all all women at the party are going, oh, can you introduce me to Tom Brady? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just know who he is. I went and say, hi, Tom. Good luck. Congrats, mate. Well done, you know. And uh, I didn't realise that all the women thought he was a really good-looking guy. <laughs> I never thought of that. I just thought, oh, yeah, he's, he's this guy or whatever. But all the women were like, oh, he's really good. I mean, I guess it helps to win a Super Bowl. But all the women thought... Oh, he's a really good-looking guy. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. So, yeah, I had a lot of experience and we did other shows uh, for SPN and so on. So uh, SPN was trying to do a lot of reality shows and quiz shows because they did well. They were making good money then. And uh, reality shows were big then. They were cheap. Uh, ESPN wanted more programming. So we tried a lot of different shows and segments and things for them with lots of different athletes, you know, with Maurice Green and different things like quiz shows, all sorts of things with Rich Eisen and uh, Stuart Scott and people back in those days. So, yeah, so that, 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 was, a, that was a great experience. You know, we, we filmed little uh, snippets for the NBA on ABC and we do it with... Um, lots of different people like Bruce Willis and uh, um, Jim Belushi and, and um, you, you know, all sorts of different people and so on. And so it was a great experience when I think of it, uh, you know. Um, uh, Samuel L. wasn't, I didn't find very friendly and, you know, I, I, I didn't, yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't really 
like him to be. But Jamie Foxx is a great guy. He was really friendly, really down to earth, would talk to you or whatever. He was very funny, very, very spontaneous. Uh, the, the characters and the things he would come up with were amazing. And the first year he was just about to start filming Ray. The second year we did it with him, he'd finished filming Ray. And I was actually in the room with him, in the makeup room with him, with the camera, when we told him that Ray Charles had died. And I'm like, no, I'm not filming it. And they go, oh, no, no, film it. And I go, no. I said I did. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. But I didn't record it because I'm like, he just played the guy in a film. It was yet to be released. But, you know, playing anybody, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, you know, we go on about actors, but to go into the headspace of fully, like he would have done it for over a year, going into the, the space of playing Ray Charles as a character and then just after that saying, oh, by the way, they've died. There's got to be an emotional thing. He, he was great. They said, do you want to shut down the filming for the day? He says, no, 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 you know, let's carry on and keep going. Um, but, yeah, so that was an experience and so on. I really like Jamie. And then I was out um, for drinks the night after the he had won the Academy Award in Beverly Hills, just coincidentally, and he and his his guys were there. I went up and said, oh, yeah, hi, we remember you. I just said congratulations. And he just won the Academy Award. He goes, thanks, mate, you know, appreciate it and whatever. So, I, yeah, he, he, he was pretty cool. Yeah, as I said, Ted, nobody can say anything bad about Ted Danson or Jamie Foxx to me. Because my, <laughs> my first-hand experiences with them, that they were very down-to-earth, very personal with me and always good, you know, whereas, uh, yeah, Steven Seagal was a character. Let's put it this way, you know. Um, he, one time I had to, uh, backtracking on Steven Seagal, one time there was this painting of a bust, you know, like of Caesar and so on, you know, those you see those busts, like, they call a bust, aren't they? You know, where there's no there's no hands and it's just the chest and then the head and so on. You right. see those around at different things in old times. He he had someone do a painting of one of those except his head, and it was for his Steven Seagal wine. So he was very very full of himself. It was very funny, and and and, and years later at the film school, um, they had him come and talk at the American Film Institute when I was just passing through there. And I went to the lecture and I joked with him and I said, yeah, I used to work with you. And he goes, yeah, I remember you. You were terrible. And so on. But at the end, he came up and hugged me and whatever. He's, he's a character. He's insecure. It was just, you know, he is what he is, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's an experience of uh, working with um, lots of different actors and actors and people over the years. Uh, I tried to get other films up and away. Uh, my film didn't sell. It's it's very hit and miss trying to get a film, um, but the the industry has changed uh, nowadays. Um, everybody anybody could make a short film because it's so cheap. I mean, I I have three different editing programs on my laptop. You know, that's just whereas you know years ago that was it. You, you didn't have it. The, the capacity of the, uh, the storage capacity and the processors weren't quick enough. And and the uh, the reason I have three different ones is because they do different presets of graphics and so on. I, actually, on my um, phone, I've got an iPhone 11 and I've got um, three different uh, the, the editing programs on there. So, you know, if you can 
get into the tediousness of it. You can technically edit something with better effects and <laughs> transitions and so on than what we had 20 years ago on the big Avid machines and so on. So it's nowadays where anybody can call themselves a filmmaker and so on. Whereas when I was growing up, and I don't want to sound like a you know crusty old man, you know, I had friends that wanted to be a cinematographer or a cameraman. I had friends that wanted to be editors. I had friends that wanted to be writers. I wanted to be a producer um, and so on and so on and so on. Nowadays, it's all people can do whatever they can, you know. It's, 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 it's different. It's different um, and so on. And, and also, be, because of the technology, they can do a lot of different things as opposed to the craft of it and the story. Because back at, back at film school at the American Film Institute, the great thing about there was after somebody would make a short film or we would look at a film like Chinatown, you name it, the teacher would say, who are these people? Meaning who are the people in the film? So that is ingrained in me to second nature. It's like who who is that in that film? Like am I... Like I'll, I'll, I'll see films now and, and so like, like I'll, I'll give you an example. I went to see Kong versus Skull Island. Uh, no, no, sorry. I like Kong Skull Island because there was cool characters in there, right? Obviously, it's all about the big ape doing crazy stuff. But then I saw the Godzilla King Kong one and it was all about, well, we've got these two big monster things. Let's just have them bash each other up. But I didn't care about any of those human characters and whatever or there was no story and so on now doesn't hold interest so yeah um nowadays there's more and more things being made that are style over substance which really annoys me because if there's no if there's no substance for me in connection to the characters and so on you're it's it's all just style um I, I liked a t- t- TV show, obviously it's, it's based around NFL, was um, the show The Rock. Um, oh, my gosh. It's out of my head. Baller? Ballers, ballers, yeah. And I was just amazed, like, that just seemed so real. Like, the characters they had, they were able to get um, the, different, um, the different teams involved, you know, like – Obviously, I go for the Miami Dolphins. The Miami Dolphins in the first um, couple of seasons was like the main, the main team. They had the logos and everything, so it felt really re- very real. But The Rock is a good character. You know, he wasn't just phoning it in. He, you really believed he was a former. I know he played for University of Miami, but you really believed he was a former player and his dealings with it and so on. So that, that you know. It wasn't style. It's pretty simple filming and editing and all that. But character-wise, it got me in, and uh, I think I think that's a big thing. Whereas some of these Marvel movies, I liked the first um, Iron Man because I felt it was good characterizations. But as they go on, technology, CGI, <laughs> things are different. Yeah, there was uh, there a lot of CGI in that last one they had. Now, I, w- I have a question about your Samuel L. Jackson time. Uh, how did you keep him from cussing the entire time? I mean, he's got the uh, foul, foul mouth. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's um, well, I th- I th- I think that's part of the 
part part of the whole stick, part of the whole, you know, mystique or or whatever. But he would just go, yeah, whatever. He he would do things like, I'd say, oh, can I just take a photo of you, right? And um, and and so on. And um, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why he didn't like me. I don't know. He 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 would like. I'd say, can I take a photo? And I go, he go, okay. And then he'd look down as I'm taking the photo. I don't know why he had attitude towards me, um, you know, and um, the the Soccer World Cup was on. He's like, ah, it's boring and whatever. And I I don't know. I I just don't know why. He just, just there's, there's a lot of attitude and so on. And and I I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't talk, you know. That's fine. But you, you have had a lot of experiences. You've had um, stories. You've had uh, is the film industry pretty big in Australia? It's 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 grown a lot. So in the last twenty years, it's um, like I went to um, uh, in nineteen. So I, I went to the Cannes Film Festival. So I had this um, this friend who's a lawyer in the entertainment industry. She said, you know, why don't you go to the, uh, the Cannes Film Festival? So in nineteen ninety two. And that's when um, uh, the movie Strictly Ballroom by Baz Luhrmann came out, and that got a, and also Tarantino's um, was there for the first film and and whatever. So there was a few Australians, but there was very few. You know, it became it was still back then. It was a boutique industry. That's what my friend, the lawyer, she said. Australia, it's a boutique industry, and um, but since then. Uh, there have been bigger films made in Australia because they've built these studios. And the other day, Russell Crowe said he wants to build near his farm um, about six, uh, six, seven hours' drive north of Sydney. He wants to build more studios and so on. So they're doing, and up in Queensland, which is the state north of me, they, they've, they've built more studios. So they film a lot of different like you know, there's the film. I think the last two or three Thor, Thor films and all that sort of thing. So there's the big budget things happening. Um, so in the last twenty years, there's there's been a lot of big budget films that have happened, um, which are outside money, um, American money, American talent, and so on. Because that's purely okay. What, what can we do it cheaper? Because it you because it used to a, a lot of those movies used to be filmed in London. Like you think of the Superman and. Batman and Star Wars and so on. Those, a lot of those were filmed, uh, and of course Bond. A lot of those films back in the day were filmed in England because of the the uh, techniques of the crew and the costs and so on and so on. And I think um, some of those sorts of things have come down to Australia. Uh, also, we weren't as heavily affected by the coronavirus, so there's been productions in the last year or so that have filmed down here. Uh, so yeah, the smaller independent film industry is a bit tougher. Uh, so I, I, I mean, someone like me, if I was trying to get a film back up and away, you know, I come under the independent um, banner, and I have a couple of friends that do that. But it's tough, you know. It could take them three years to get a film up and away. And as an independent filmmaker, even if it gets made, they might earn a hundred grand from it, for argument's sake. Now, that's not a lot, you know, but that's if it gets up and away. 
But, you know, if you're people like me that, I, I, I mean, I've spent a lot of money and time over the years trying to get films happening. So, you know, because there's times you work and then there's times you work part-time and there's times you say, I'm not going to work because I need to spend a lot of time and resources. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, of times I've flown to LA, spent time in LA, tried to get things happening, not working. And um, you've got to have a passion for it because not everybody becomes like the Hemsworth brothers who make lots and lots of money and, you know, and can get that power. And good luck to them. I'm very happy for them. Don't get me wrong. But for every, every you know, Hemsworth or Russell Crowe or Baz Luhrmann or someone, there's hundreds of others that don't, um, don't make it. And I'm, I'm not bitter. I'm not sorry. I've tried to do what I've done with my life because, um, you know, uh, you, you've got to try your passion and so on. Otherwise, life's just, you know, it's a, life's not a destination. It's a journey. And, you know, you, you can always wish that you had success. I wish my film pickups got picked up, pardon the pun, um, or something else happened from it. But as I say, I have other friends that have made films and so on. Uh, that Some even got some sort of distribution, uh, but it, it hasn't got them a three-year contract with Warner Brothers or, or whoever. And as I say, I have plenty of friends like that here in Australia and in America. Um, I have uh, many, many actor friends who it didn't work out and you, you go back and they're, they're, they're doing different things. But nowadays with film schools um, everywhere, there's just so many more people going into it and pumped out every, every year and so on, and there's just only so many jobs. I, I mean, and I guess it's like sports um, journalism, you know. I mean, there's um, so many people, you know, would love to have the, the prime gigs at NFL Network or ESPN or whoever it is, but there's only so many gigs to go around, and uh, it's, 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 it's the same thing. But um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I would like to... I, I've got an idea for another film I'd like to do set in Australia. Uh, I have a couple of friends from America who encourage me to do it. But uh, you, you, you get to a stage when, you, when you're younger, you go, oh, what the hell, I'm going to do it and I'll worry about finances and so on later. Whereas when you, <laughs> when you get to my age, you're like, well, it's hard to get work and it's hard to do anything. So you're just more cautious of what you spend your time and resources on because um, uh, you just, yeah, you, you've got to be a bit more stringent. Thus, um, you know, the two books I've, I've, I've written, uh, the, obviously they cost me money to produce and so on. But if you do it, see, if you do a film script or a film idea or something, it's, it's just a basis for something else. It's a basis for, filming or, and so on, whereas the books I've done, I've put the work in, I've done and put them out, they are their own entity. So you look at the book and you look, pick it up and you read it and so on. It's not, it's not a basis for a TV show or something else and so on. So it has a beginning, middle and an end. So whereas if you're trying to um, do a TV, I mean, I've, I've also pitched numerous reality or sports-based TV shows in America and here. 
and you know people show interest and so on, but they haven't been picked up. So you can you can spend that basis and develop an idea and concept and say, well, this happens and so on and so on. Um, but if it doesn't happen, then it's just an idea on paper or on your computer. Whereas I guess putting the two books out, I have at least they're a finish. There's an end to them. You know, it's like, hey, do you want to read the book? Do you want to buy the book? You know, here's the book and so on. Um, the two books, the Rugby League is the winner, which is about rugby league, my favourite um, sport here, and NFL cliches, which, you know, is my favourite <laughs> American sport, which I watch shows of all the time. I get up all the time and watch any anything to do I see on YouTube or uh, to do with NFL and so on. So NFL cliches is, is a comedic book and it's available. People can read it right now. Well, absolutely. And, uh, again, we'll put the link uh, to your NFL cliches. I believe it's NFLcliches.com. That's it, NFLcliches.com. And you can, uh, there's a link there. You can read a little bit about it. Email me directly. And um, anyway, like a digital book for $5 or a paper book for $10, we can get those out to you. And I'd just appreciate you appreciating the book. That's, that's where it would be nice, you know, people well, appreciate it. The big thing is uh, we like uh, on the Sports History Network, and I know personally, when I, when I put out something like Football is Family, I focus on two parts about it, the football and the family. And what you're talking about with your life and what your interest is the family part. And that's what I appreciate about everything that you're telling us tonight. You know, you're you're making it real, and you're showing people your interests, your passions, and and the book is part of that. Yeah, well, definitely. That that's the thing. I mean, look, I um, you know, if I go back to Neil Canton, that movie producer, he said to me, just if you if that's what you want to do, you want to make it, go out and do it. And with the book, um, or the rugby league, the winner book was the first one I did. My brother, um. I had written like a lot of the notes and so on, and I was going to do it with a former legend player, and he let me down the last second. But my brother just said, "Well, if that's what you want to do, just go and do it." And so there's there's an element of that, and then thus I'm like, "Well, I want to do an NFL one, okay?" And there's a term, "Put your money where your mouth is," and then there's a passion because ultimately we're here on this earth, and I don't want to talk doom and gloom, but I'll be gone, you know. But at least I'll go. I've done something i wanted to get that out and do it and and as you say with the old filming and so on and um uh, basically all the shows i've done all the films i've done or the tv shows or whatever um back here or in america they're all somehow connected to either friends or family and or both and and the books as well basically so you know it is a very strong thing. I mean, people, friends and family. Um, so my friends and family, like some friends obviously were involved in TV and so on, but basically none of them had any idea about film production. But they're like, oh, okay, we're going to support you do that. The books, you know, oh, okay, that sounds nice. We're going to support you. So for anybody that wants to do anything and so on, friends and family can be a big stepping stone and even when, even if things don't work out, generally your friends and family are still there. Okay, you might not sell. Not everyone's going to sell a million copies of their book, no, you know, um, and so on. But very few people ever do, you know. Um, 
but but it's really a passion thing you want to put out and and your friends and the family are going to be the first ones that go and buy a copy so or give you support or say well done um like your podcast and so on it's as you say that's what it's all about friends and family and it's true so don't don't forsake your friends or family, anybody. That's the one little bit of advice if I could give to anyone. I, uh, I've been telling my kids this, that over the past year with COVID, especially here in Tennessee, uh, we've held, you know, my grandmothers are in their late 80s. Right. My, my dad and my mother and my sister and brother-in-law and my two nieces and my nephew, my son, my, my two daughters, we've, we've learned how to appreciate each other more because like you said, you know, you, you don't know, you just don't know. Um, and that's part of what, again, with, with this idea of, uh, of football is family. Yeah. There's the football part. We could talk X's and O's all day long, but that family part, it doesn't change. It's, it's, it's important and it gets more important. And today uh, you said you, it's your sister's birthday. So happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. My sister, Anne, 64. So uh, we can stir her about that. She's a big, huge Beatles fan. So she's just really wanting to play that song uh, when I'm 64 by the Beatles. Uh, and I, okay. Okay. I have a problem with the Beatles and here's the problem. Yeah, if they were to stop before the psychedelic stuff, I wouldn't mind them at all. <laughs> uh, I have a problem because I, I guess I'm not smart enough or I'm not drugged up enough to know what the walrus is. Yeah, uh, you if you like the Beatles, hey, more more power to you. But I don't know what cuckoo cuckoo means. Yeah. Well, um, I, I heard. Well, the war. Well, the, the war is just what is. Isn't it just John's um, like an alter ego, crazy thing? You know, it's just like, hey. But um, uh, I, I heard a thing of um, uh, Paul McCartney said he he was on the plane um, with a guy who had a very strong um, accent, and he says, "Pass salt and pepper," and uh, he thought he said. Sergeant Pepper and McCartney said, I thought you said Sergeant Pepper. And he goes, No, salt and pepper. And he goes, That's great. That's a great idea for our um, uh, alternate. So they, their whole thing was they wanted to be reinvent themselves as a, a be the Beatles, but this different band and so on. And he says, Oh, that's great. That's salt and pepper. So uh, Sergeant Pepper. But you're right. You're right. I mean, they, they've got two. They've got two speeds, haven't they? The the, the the Beatles, they had the pre and the post and and um, and, and everybody's uh, everybody's got their theory on it. You know, there's the whole and then there's the whole thing, reason of John Lennon was shot because the guy thought he was a phony and so on and so on. Yeah. So uh, that's that's um that's that's a whole other different level. But um yeah. Um but uh I don't know. I'm not into rap music and so on, and I'm not into the sampling, the big sampling. I'm sort of like, get your own music, make your own music. So I sort of, uh, I, I'm a big, I'm a big Beach Boys fan, Jeremy, and, and they, 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 they had a little bit of that uh, psychedelic, uh, little bit towards the end, uh, Brian Wilson. 
Yeah, they did a little bit of psychedelic. If I remember correctly, Brian Wilson got involved with Charles Manson a little bit. So that was his brother, yeah. And then they brought him along and get crazy. But uh, talk about friends. I'm, I'm bringing them in too because not only they're American, but they're friends and family because there was three brothers, the cousin uh, in the band, and their father was the manager. And basically their father, is it Murray? I think it was Murray was his name sold all the rights for $750,000 to the songs back in the 60s, So, um, which I guess at the time he thought was a lot of money, but then you think of how the Beach Boys songs are just used in, I, I presume in America, but it seems like every third commercial in Australia, they <laughs> use a Beach Boys song and, you know, um, and, and so on. So... That was a case of a family and, yeah, um, as you said, the Manson family is not a real family and not a family we want to talk, we want to. <laughs> no, uh, but if you're interested in trying some music, uh, let me make a suggestion for you. Try uh, early Dave Matthews band and uh, let me know what you think. Okay. I'll go back and I'll give it a try. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually – before these crowded streets would be what I would recommend. Uh, but that's when my, my biggest influence, my, my dad was telling me that most people can recognize their favorite music according to the generation that they grew up to. And, right. and mine would probably be the nineties that I can remember the most. In fact, today I was doing a, uh, a trivia game on Siri and my daughters were looking at me and said, how do you know these things? And I was like, I'm, I'm a dad. I do two things. I know stuff and I'm grumpy. That's what, that's what you know. <laughs> and when I said Siri, my phone just popped up. Okay, we're going to, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you later, Siri. Mr. Gary, it has been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you tonight. I appreciate you giving us your time and your expertise. And again, where can we find your books? NFLcliches.com. So if you just go there to the site, you'll get some examples, and then you'll see on there my – I just put my direct email that people can just email me directly, you know. And, then, and he uh, will get I, back with you. He will do that. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty good at that. That's one thing I'm pretty good at. And uh, <laughs> I can get back to you. And uh, if people want a digital copy or they want a paperback, I, as I said, I have my friend in Arizona – as the paperback copies, he can post them from there because I'm in Sydney. Now, um, now, what I would like to do is you have your your. Are you on your phone or on your on your computer now with your video? I'm on my computer. Is there any way that I can see out your window there? I like to. It's blown out of there. Um, okay, I I can't. It's it's bright. It's, it's, Here's. Here's the thing. When I was in Scotland a few years ago, I took a, I was video chatting with my wife and I showed her the video of the mountains in the background. And, and I just oh. thought that was absolutely beautiful. And I love to see the scenery around where you are. Well, I've, I could show you, but even, uh, you know what, <clears throat> one time we'll do it um, from my phone or something, or I'll take some photos and send yeah. it to I, I live in suburbia. I live in the suburbs. So if I walked outside, you'd see my, um, my gate and my metal and you'd see the rubbish bins. And if I walked out my back door, you'd see a little bit of fake grass and a few plants I'm trying to grow. So that that's the only thing is I, um, you know, it, it, it's like uh, 
Yeah, I, I live in I live in the suburbs, so it's pretty much. Uh, <laughs> you, I went down the road, you see the train station, and you'd see, uh, you know, if I went two kilometres, you know. So, but um, I, uh, um, yeah, I don't, unfortunately, I can't afford to look, uh, I, I can't afford to live in one of those places where you look out and you see the Sydney Harbour Bridge and so I, <laughs> my mother, my, my grandmother and I were talking about the Sydney Opera House today, in fact. I, I kind of think it's fun. Oh, one last thing. My son was in a, he's in the band there at the high school and they actually were doing music from Australia. And one of the, one of the members, her husband had a didgeridoo. Right. And that thing sounded just plain awesome. So I I'm going to buy a didgeridoo and I'm going to learn how to play it. And I'm going to play it all the time for my wife. I know she would appreciate that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, 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 that's one, that's one way to uh, get her to be in the next war. Yeah, I've been married 18 years, but the moment I get that, it's probably 18 years and that'll be it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that could be it. That could be it. It's, uh, that, that, that would be interesting. But, um, well, um, yeah, well, anytime you want me on, I'm happy to come back on again. Um, we're, we're warming up. So what are we, late June? Uh, so we're really, um, what is it, about six weeks away from the first, um trial game something like that well here's here's the thing in uh in tennessee of course anywhere else they have the preseason they have training camp where you can go up and watch your your team play uh, and train and about two years ago tom brady came down right and i got to see him like several several feet away but it's hot and there's no shade there at St. Thomas Sports Park. And I'm thinking, I'm 42 years old. It gets to the point that I can watch these guys on television, and I have air conditioning. I have water next to me. I'm good. So I may not be going to training camp this year. It just gets <laughs> – it's just too hot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, that's when I, you know I, that either you're, you're getting older or you just wised up and realized, man, it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah. I I don't blame them. I don't blame them. It's just in some of those places. I remember the first time I went to Miami, and it was um, it was March. It was March, and I used to jog every morning in those days. And I went for a jog, and I jogged in Scotland. I jogged in all the different places, different heat in Australia, all sorts of things. I I couldn't do it. It couldn't do it. So, I mean, I just thought to myself, imagine what it's it's just like in those training months down in those areas. That's why, you know, if you got to want it, you really do. Yeah. Uh, we would yeah, play we we'd play football in December when it's icy outside. I can handle 20-degree weather. I'm made for 20-degree weather, but anything above 80, count me out. <laughs> <laughs> count me out. Well, Mr. Gary, I appreciate it, and uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you, and pleasure. Anytime, I really appreciate it. Anytime you want me on, let me know, and we can uh, we can talk about um, we can talk about something else. Well, hey, I've got your I've got your cell phone. Well, I've got your email address. I should say that. And thank y'all for listening to Footballers Family. All right. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude. 
and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.